Heaven has no rage like love to hatred turned, nor hell a fury like a woman scorned. Welcome back to another exciting episode of One Kick-Ass Bitch. My name is Ken and I'm here with my partner, Amber. So this is something I heard about on uh, Dan Carlin's podcast once he mentioned it and didn't go into it. And then I did a Google and like found a little thing, but then attacked it a different way. And then I started finding stuff. So done in chapters. Chapter one is The Plane. Nikolai Nikolaevich Polykarpov, born June 8, 1892, died July 30th, 1944. I'm all obsessed about when people lived and died for some reason. He was a Soviet aeronautical engineer and aircraft designer known as King of Fighters. One of the planes he built became known as the Polykarpov PO-2. It was first called a U-2. No Bono jokes, please. He's trying to save humanity. He's not to be mocked. It's for the starving children. It was, it was to replace the U-1 trainer. The U-2's name was changed to PO-2 in 1944 after Polykarpov's death. According to the then-Soviet naming system, usually the first two letters of a designer's family name or the Soviet government-established design bureau that created it. It served as a general-purpose Soviet biplane, nicknamed Kukuruznik, from the Russian Kukuruza for maize or corn. Thus, it was known as the maize duster or crop duster, the boys at NATO called it Mule. So it's a it's a Soviet biplane is what it is. Has um an N-shaped strut and it has wires holding it up, like keeping everything separated and stuff. Mm-hmm. Things are pretty cool. I didn't do it. My dryer just finished, guys. My sheets are done drying. So just to recap, this plane is known as the Polykarpov or the U-2 or the PO2, or the Kukuruznik, or Mule. Or Crop Duster, or Maze, if you want the English (laughs) translation. I'm just going to call it the U2 because Bono, he's a savior of humanity. Militaryfactory.com says, the U2 was completed in a traditional two-seat biplane winged arrangement. The personnel sat in line in open-air cockpits with the pilot in the front and the observer or navigator or machine gunner to his rear. Because, you know, you have to machine gun corn. Yeah. I mean, naturally. Yeah. How do you make popcorn if you're not using a machine gun? <laughs> Duh. I didn't even... That's, you, you speak truth. The main wings were arranged in the typical over-under biplane format featuring in-style struts, applicable support control surface cabling, and showcasing single bays. I don't know what that means, but that's what it says. The engine was fitted to the nose section like they usually are, and it drove a two-bladed propeller. The tail unit held a single rounded vertical fin with low-mounted horizontal planes. The undercarriage was fixed in place. The pilot offered two the pilot was offered or based I don't know why I phrased it like that. There basically were two rubber landing wheels, and in the tail it had like a um, like a skid. This gave the U-2 a rather excellent rough field landing ability. At the time, it was even more complex and inherently delicate 
or the more complex, inherently delicate, all-metal monoplane aircraft designs were being built weren't as strong as what this was. So instead of having like your typical World War II fighter that you would see with one plane, with one wing underneath, you know, this was more of a World War One kind of fighter. And um, what well, was built in like 19, I think I get into that here, 1928, 1929. In addition to that, the U-2 was noted for its strong short takeoff and landing capabilities and held an inherent simplicity about its design. STOL, that means, yeah, short takeoff and landing. So basically this thing didn't need a lot of runway to take off. That's why it was a crop duster. You just be on a dirt road somewhere and think of take off and land. The U-2 is powered by a 99 horsepower air-cooled five-cylinder radial engine. It flew first on the 7th of January, 1928, one day and seven years before Elvis's birthday, as a matter of fact. Oh, wow. Because he was uh, January 8th, 1935 is his birthday. But the uh, the test pilot's name was Mikhail Mikhailovich Grulmov, born February 23rd, 1899 in Tavir, also known as Kalinin. I know this because I have been there. That's why I was like, I know where that guy is at. He died. Did he? <laughs> January 22nd, 1985. Damn, that's a that's a long life. He was kind of a big deal. He was he was like the Soviet Charles Lindbergh. He did one flight that went from Moscow to somewhere in California and did it by flying over the globe. Wow. Yeah. This guy was like a fucking major Soviet deal. Aircraft from pre-production from the pre-production series were tested at the end of 1928 and production of this aircraft of the U-2 started uh, in 1929 in factory number 23 in Leningrad. I love how they named their factories. Yeah. At Leningrad, I've also been there. Production in the Soviet Union ended in 1953, but it did continue in Poland under a different name, the CSS something or other, uh, until 1959. But according to militaryfactory.com, its career lasted into the late 70s. It holds the world record for biplane production with between 20 and 40,000 made. Wow. They made a lot of these fucking I things. I can't believe they used them into the 70s. Crop dusting. That's wild. And other things that we'll get into here. The U-2 had only modest performance, including a cruise speed of 68 miles an hour, top speed 93 miles an hour. So this thing was not fast. It was a five-cylinder radial engine on the front of it. You know, like a, a Kia would go faster than that I thing. I drive a Kia. Yes, it does. <laughs> Hard to get it up there, but it'll do it, especially if you're downhill and the wind's behind you. It was, however, extremely maneuverable. Polly Karpoff jokingly said that the U-2 could fly up to a window and look over the sill to see if the enemy was inside. So these things could turn turn on a dime. It had served in roles as varied as fighter, trainer, crop duster, air ambulance, and the first trials of arming the aircraft with bombs took place in 1941. Wehrmacht troops nicknamed it the Nachmaschine, which is German for sewing machine and probably pronounced way incorrectly. They called it that because of the rattling sound it made. It was made out of wooden canvas. With an engine strapped to the front of it. We should just do a season wrap-up where we find out how to actually pronounce things. Yeah. Or go find a German person. Come here, sit down. Please help. 
Finnish troops called it Hermosata, which means nerve saw, which I think is a cool name. As the Soviets flew nocturnal missions at low altitudes, the engines had a very peculiar sound, which was described as a nerve racking. Therefore, the name. The stuff that was blown up on these missions may be minor, but the psychological effect was noticeable. Night missions. So they're yeah. laying there sleeping, minding their own business, and all of a sudden... Yeah, they feel safe. And, and you can't really tell where it's coming from because it's things not that loud, but hell, it'll fuck up your head. They typically attacked by surprise in the middle of the night, denying German troops sleep and keeping them on their guard, continuing to their already level 10, <laughs> keeping them on their guard, contributing to their already level 10 war freakout. If you're in the middle of war, you're always, you're on edge as yeah. it is. And here's, eh, eh, where's it coming from? Where's it coming from? Every night, you don't know if you're going to be woken up by the, eh, eh, in the, whoa. Yeah, in the middle, it's, where is it? What's happening? So the usual tactic involved flying only a few meters above the ground, rising for the final approach, throttling back the engine, and making a gliding bombing run, leaving the targeted troops with only the eerie whistling of the wind in the wings bracing wires as an indication of the impending attack. Luftwaffe fighters found it extremely hard to shoot down the U-2 because of two main factors. The pilots flew at treetop level where they were hard to see or engage, and the stall speed of German fighter planes was similar to the U-2's maximum speed, making it difficult for fighters to keep a U-2 in weapon sight. So they got these planes are too fast and they can't we got to slow down to try to get this thing and their planes would stall out so they couldn't keep it in their sights plus the damn thing was meters meters six feet above the ground these damn things would fly if they had a clearing you know probably mostly a little bit taller probably like 30 at most but they would fly in and then get some altitude and then cut the engine and all you hear is a whistling noise it would i I think it would feel like a ghost plane coming in and just. Well, like I said, the eerie whistling of the wind in the wings and the wings is bracing wires. Later, German troops began to think that noise was made by brooms whistling through the night. Hmm. At the very bottom of this page, you have extra space. I said I need to build Lily Filler comic here. Yeah. <laughs> I almost drew one. But anyway. So now we're on part two. The pilot. Marina Mikhailovich Raskova, born March 28, 1912, died January 4th, 1943. So immediately you look at that, it was like, well, something happened in the war. Yeah. She was a famous Soviet pilot and navigator. She later became one of over 800,000 women in the military service, founding three female air regiments, which would eventually fly over 30,000 sorties in World War II or the Great Patriotic War, as they call it there, producing at least 30 heroes of the Soviet Union. Now, remember, Ludmila Plavinchenko was a mm -hmm. hero of the Soviet Union, and that's how you get it, by just killing a lot of Nazis. Marina Raskova was born to middle-class parents. Her father was an opera singer and a singing instructor. Her mother was a teacher. Her mother's sister was a famous Russian singer. I had all their names written down, but they're Russian. So I was like, I can't really pronounce this. But you can look them up online. 
Unlike the majority of Soviet airwomen, Marina did not show any early in, in interest in avi- aviation. Her parents wanted her to become a musician, and her goal was to become an opera singer. In 1919, when she was seven, her father died from injuries inflicted as he was struck by another opera singer when he took the last cupcake at an opera function. It was a Borat-style fight. Are you kidding me? Big, huge Russian opera singers beating hell out of each other. Over a cupcake? I'm kidding. It was it was actually a motorcycle accident. Oh. <laughs> God damn it, Ken. I was... I mean, not excited that somebody died in a cupcake fight, but excited that uh, there was a fatal cupcake fight. How could you do that to me? (laughs) She continued studying singing, but got really stressed out and said, fuck it, and got into chemistry. Oh. Yeah. A natural, a natural choice progression. for when you're stressed out. La, 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 la. I can't do this anymore and start singing the periodical table of the elements. She graduated by high school in 1929, then got a job at a dye factory as a chemist. She married a dye engineer she met. They had a daughter, Tanya, in 1930. The following year, 1931. No shit. <laughs> yeah. She switched careers and started to work at the Aero National Laboratory of the Air Force Academy as a draftswoman. Goes from singer to chemist, professionally does the chemist thing, and then says the hell with it and gets a job at the airplane laboratory drawing airplanes. Why? I, I don't know. She must have been dying to get out of a regular job. <laughs> she was Rush's Amelia Earhart. So if you have the one guy is like, Charles Lindbergh, she was basically Amelia Earhart. She became a famous aviator as both a pilot and a navigator for Russia in the 1930s. She was the first woman to become a navigator in the Soviet Air Force in 1933. A year later, she started teaching at the Zhukovsky Air Academy, also a first for a woman. In 1935, she got divorced. The USSR gave its aviators celebrity status. Actually, at that time, I'd say the world gave aviators celebrity status. Well, I mean, it was an incredible thing. Yeah. I mean, like I said, Amelia Earhart, Charles Lindbergh, we know two. Now you know two Russians. This was relatively new stuff. Oh, totally. Yeah. These people pioneered the badassery in. So she ended up, what she ended up doing was she set a number of long distance records. Many of these records. Record flights occurred in 1937 and 1938 while she was still teaching at the Air Academy. The most famous of these records was the flight of the Rodina. So the name of the plane was called Rodina, which in Russian means motherland. Ah, motherland. On September 24th and 25th, 1938, she was a navigator of an all-female crew. They were Valentina Grizodubova. Captain Polina Osipenko and Lieutenant Marina Reskova. Probably butchered all of those names. From the start, the goal was to set an international woman's record for a straight line distance flight. The plan was to fly from Moscow to Komsomolsk. It's a place in the Far East. It's right by the Manchurian Plain, southern um, uh, Siberia. When finally completed, the flight took 26 hours and 29 minutes over a as-the-crows-fly distance of 4,036 miles. 
It was longer than Charles Lindbergh's transatlantic flight and far exceeded any nonstop aerial journey made by women at that point. However, the 26 and a half hour flight turned into 10 days. When upon arrival, the plane was unable to find an airfield due to poor visibility. Because the navigator's cockpit had no entrance to the plane and was vulnerable in crash landing, Marina parachuted out before they touched down because she was probably in the nose of the plane on the bottom half of it. It's the only thing I can figure. And they're like, fuck, we can't find anywhere to land. We hit a tree. We're above you. We're going to be okay. You're not. So jumped out. And the, I imagine, pure mayhem didn't grab her emergency kit and was unable to find the plane for 10 days. Oh, my wandering around swampy land by Manchuria with no food or water. The rescue crew had found the airplane eight days after the quote-unquote landing and was waiting when she found it two days later, after which all three women were taken to safety. On November 2nd, 1938, all of them were decorated with the Hero of the Soviet Union Award, the first females ever to receive it and the only ones before the Great Patriotic War. Then the goddamn Nazis showed up. Those goddamn Nazis. Laskova got the idea of a woman's aviation unit, or just women's aviation units, because women fly. Yeah, go be a nurse. Yeah. So she ended up meeting with the top commies, including Joseph Stalin, because she fucking could. She was big time, you know? Go hang out with Stalin, not a problem. Even for her, it wasn't easy, but she eventually convinced them in 1941. She got three. The groups were as follows. The 588th Night Bomber Regiment, which later became the 46th Guards Night Bomber Aviation Regiment, the 125th Guards Bomber Aviation Regiment, and the 586th Fighter Aviation Regiment. The last two groups eventually let males in, while the first group was all female throughout the war. Fuck yeah. Chapter 3, The Witches. Sounds like a chapter I'm into. So imagine this. It's the Eastern Front. There's goddamn Nazis all over the place, and it's nighttime. It's June, 1942. In the air above, there's a noise, and it's not an engine. It's nothing man-made. It sounds like a swoosh. Then all of hell breaks loose. Using the Polycarpov U-2s with the engine throttled down, And gliding in the quiet of night, a group of 18 to 20-year-old women, girls really, rained fire. The tactic was this. Two planes would go over enemy lines. Using the maneuverability of the U-2, go Bono, go! Fuck yeah, Bono. (laughs) And they would zigzag around the goddamn Nazis' heads, drawing fire and the ire of spotlights, while another U-2 would glide over and drop all manner of anti-Nazi goodness. Then the plane would join the confusion while one of the other twos dropped their love. And then rinse, repeat. So they would just take turns zigzagging around, flying like gnats, because they were only going, who knows, 70 miles an hour? Somehow or other, Nazis found out it was women pilots. And associating the whoosh with that of a witch flying on a broom, the girls got a name, and they wore it with honor. Noctexan. The night witches. They were loathed. They were feared. Any German pilot who downed a witch was automatically awarded the Iron Cross, 
which was not easy. The witch's slow planes had a top speed that was below what a fighter plane could fly. Plus, with their maneuverability, forget about it. They were like Russian barnstormers. You ever seen those guys in the airplanes? Mm-hmm. That, that's, that's exactly what these things were like. Due to the weight of the bombs and the low altitude of the flights, the pilots, <laughs> they carried no parachutes until 1944. That seems like a really safe, great idea. They're 30 feet above the ground. You jump out with a parachute, forget it. Who cares? You're hitting the damn tree. That's that's true. Empty, the planes weighed about 1,600 pounds and fully loaded. I think they weighed about 2,200. So these things were nothing. When I had my Challenger, that thing weighed over 4,000 pounds. So it was like, yeah, double the weight of one of these things. We bombed, we killed. It was all part of war. We had an enemy in front of us, and we had to prove that we were stronger and more prepared. Nadiza Popova, one of the first volunteers, said that in a 2010 interview. She was the commander of the squad who flew 852 missions. They had no radar, only maps and compasses. If hit by tracer bullets, their U-2 would catch fire. They just took it in stride. The pilots' skill prompted the Germans to spread rumors that the Russian women were given special injections and pills to give them cat-like vision. Oh. (laughs) Now, on the flip side of the coin, when we invented radar and the Germans didn't know we had it and were blowing their shit up, we spread propaganda saying, well, what's happening over there is the American and British pilots, they're eating a lot of carrots and it's increasing their vision. And that's where the rumor, eating carrots makes your vision better, came from. My great-grandma used to push that one. Yeah, because because of that propaganda. Wow. Luckily, you weren't in Russia. She started giving you drugs to give you cat-like vision. Uh, too bad I wasn't in Russia. <laughs> More like it. I love cats. On her first mission, she saw another broomstick go down. I call them broomsticks because you know, they're the witches. Killing two of her friends. She dropped her bombs on the dots of lights below. I was ordered to fly another mission immediately, she told Russian Life magazine in 2003. It was the best thing to keep me from thinking about what happened. From a New York Times article, once after being downed, she found herself in a horde of retreating troops and civilians. In the crowd was a wounded fighter pilot named Semyon Karlamov, Reading a book, All Quiet Flows the Dawn by Mikhail Shafkovs. was an epic Soviet novel. And they ended up striking up a conversation, and she read him some poetry. They eventually separated, but saw each other again several times during the war. At war's end, they met... Do I smell a love connection? They met at the Reichstag in Berlin and scribbled their names on the wall. And then they soon got married, which is awesome. Yeah. At the start of the war, she said, no one in the armed services wanted to give women the freedom to die. And she said that to Albert Axel, the author of Russians Heroes in 1941-1945, a book that came out in 2001. So that's why we're finding about all these Russian women, these kick-ass bitches, because no one... And the armed services wanted to give them the freedom to die. Well, because if you do that, they're no longer delicate things that needed to be kept and protected they at home. They didn't want to see their women dying. Well, and is what they she's didn't, trying to say. Yeah. Well, and they didn't want to 
I guess, give them that much independence either because that's once you tell these women like they're you're free to do that you're a badass you don't have to be a nurse you don't have to be a teacher yeah it completely changes everything for she them she told another story one time after they got done flying a mission she counted 42 bullet holes in her airplane and through she was a navigator she was she sat in the back seat and in the map she was holding and in her helmet <laughs> I'm like, what the fuck? And there's pictures of this woman. Can you even imagine the f- like where your mind would be at that point? You're so focused on your job. You got bullets literally whizzing by your head because there's no way she didn't hear that. Her Crazy. plane's so damn quiet. She of ended up she dying. Um, she was 81 when she died. And she died. In, no, 91 when she died in 2013. I think it was June 9th, 2013. So she... She hung around for a while. Wow. So the other women that I mentioned earlier, when uh, Marina got in that plane wreck, I put their names in there because originally I was going to start doing the research on all of the all of the night witches. There were a lot of night witches. I mean, think about it, thirty of them got here of the Soviet Union. So, so here's some here's some other little facts sorties. Throughout the course of the war, the regiment ac- accumulated approximately two. Are twenty three thousand six hundred and seventy two sorties in combat, including the following battles: the Battle of the Caucasus. They did. They flew two thousand nine hundred and twenty sorties. Also, I think in that fight they um they participated in this Paul, which is that Russian bitch from hell was there. I still love that name. Yeah, I uh, mean they had a lot of badass names: Russian bitch from hell, night witches. I yeah, I really like night witches. It's like it's like my favorite. In total, the regiment collectively accumulated twenty eight thousand six hundred and seventy six flight hours, dropped over three thousand tons of bombs and over twenty six thousand incendiary shells, damaging or completely destroying seventeen river crossings, nine railways, two rail stations, twenty six warehouses, twelve fuel depots, one hundred and seventy six armored cars. 86 firing positions and 11 searchlights. In addition to bombings, the unit performed 155 supply drops of food and ammunition to the Soviet forces. In total, 261 people served in the regiment, of which 32 died of various causes, including, shockingly enough, plane crashes, combat deaths, and tuberculosis. They only lost 28 planes. The night witches were unique among the female combatants of World War II. Other countries, the U.S. among them, may have allowed women to fly as members of their early air forces. These women, however, served largely in support and transport roles, or those women did. Um, But the Soviet Union was the first nation to allow women to fly combat missions. These ladies dropped bombs. And they are true kick-ass bitches. Fuck yeah. So that was, yeah, I love the Night Witches. I'm like, I'm almost, almost tearing up like when I was researching it because of how fucking amazing they were. Yeah, it's just incredible. I just, Marina, my mind is blown. Marina actually. knew of all these different flying clubs and knew that there were women in those flying clubs who would go and go, hey, the war's breaking out. And they'd go to their local army place or whatever and say, I want to go. And I'm a kick ass pilot. 
and they would say, "Yeah, be a nurse." Like we and haven't Marina heard that before. Marina came along, and, and Marina was like, "Hey, there's women out there we can use. We have a place for you." <laughs> and then that last woman I was talking about, one of the reasons she became a pilot, the reason she joined, one of her reasons was revenge, because the Nazis had turned her home, her childhood home, into a base of operations and killed her brother. She was pissed. Yeah, she's out for blood. She wants those Nazi scalps. And she sure did a great job. What was that Nazi scalps? That was... um. Inglorious Bastards. There you go. Brad Pitt. You ever see the original? Mm-mm. Came out in 1980. I've got a copy of it somewhere. I'll have to let you borrow it. Yeah, I would love that. So that's it. Those are the Night Witches, and they are... Many kick-ass kick bitches. bitches.